Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the pensions regulator has warned against hasty, premature reactions to coronavirus mortality figures, much as in a personal setting it's unwise to spend your grandparents' inheritance before they're actually dead, and definitely unwise to spend it before you know where you stand in the will, assuming there will be some kind of mortality dividend as a result of the pandemic, and changing your technical provisions accordingly would be premature, the regulator said, while promising more guidance in this area in its forthcoming annual funding statement. Next, the Pensions Regulator and the Pension Protection Fund issued a joint consultation at the end of last month into proposals to change asset class information collected via the scheme return. TPR uses asset class information to help measure investment risk, and the Pension Protection Fund uses it to help calculate the levy. Uh, But there are fears the current setup hasn't kept pace with the changing behavior in pension scheme investments, and in particular, the growth in allocation to bonds over the last decade. The proposal is to introduce a range of new categories of asset class information, broadly divided into bonds and equities and other assets, but with many subcategories therein. Uh, If agreed to, schemes would themselves be divided into tiers in order that the added regulatory burden does not sink those who cannot afford to float with it. And then finally, though arguably no bad thing for those who take environmental, social and governance standards seriously, uh, participants in Camerodata's recent Investing in China roundtable were broadly agreed that UK pension schemes are under-allocated to Chinese equities. Uh, Broadly agreed they might have been, but there was no consensus on what the allocation should in fact be, figures ranged from 5 to 15% or on precisely which equity categories should make up the bulk of any allocation. And also there are questions as to whether the world's second largest economy should still be considered an emerging market, or should it be carved out to stand alone? Is investing in it compatible with one's ESG priorities? All kinds of interesting questions thrown up by the Canberra Data Panel, and we'll discuss some of those. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert. Uh, Joining me to discuss all of that are Lars Hagenbuch, investment consultant at Rescura, and Cyprian Njama, director at SEI Investments. Thank you both very much for joining me. And we'll get started with death, I think, so we can get it out of the way and move on to more serious <laughs> matters. Uh, regulators mentioned it's cautioned against making premature judgments based on mortality data and projections from coronavirus. David Fares, the regulator's director of regulatory policy analysis and advice, says it's still early days as far as understanding the true impact of the pandemic upon mortality goes. And I think most analysts would seem to agree. But um, Cyprian, I wonder if we, if we can kick off with you on this one. Obviously, everyone is broadly agreed on this, but the regulator has still seen fit to, to introduce some more guidance on this in its annual funding statement. So there must be more to say about it than just that it's too soon, isn't there? Yes. Um, again, I think there is more to say in terms of providing just a bit more guidance. As you mentioned, Benjamin, we really need to take a cautious approach on this. In situations, especially risk management and pensions in general, wherever there are assumptions that will sort of benefit technical provisions or lowering the liabilities, we tend to jump at it. But definitely cautious approach. It's important that the regulators actually providing guidance in its annual statement as it's done in the past on several issues as well. Lars, do you want to, to come in on this? Uh, obviously, the regulator is issuing guidance. Is there a need for the guidance or is this well, relatively well understood? Yeah, to, to, to be honest, I mean, it's, it's not an area of, of great expertise for us as a firm, but, you know, wearing my actuarial hat for a second, you know, I, I would concur that it's a very complicated interaction of factors. So, yes, there'll be more people who will be affected by COVID. There will be higher deaths from that. But on the flip side, there'll be, you know, fewer people are commuting to work. So we've got fewer car accidents. And until you've sort of feel fully understood the interaction of these factors, I would wholeheartedly concur and say, you know, that it, it would be foolish, it would be reckless to go ahead and, and adjust your mortality assumptions 
until you've fully uh, understood what's happening. How, how temporary will COVID be? You know, will, a, will the vaccines cause deaths to plummet? Uh, will we find a cure? These things need to be you know, thought about much more carefully than, than just to look at a year's worth of excess deaths that we might have had. And indeed, we have had. And of course, that's, you know, it's terrible. It's a terrible impact it's had on society. But, you know, let's, let's give it time to understand properly what's working there. Actually, there was an interesting point about the car accidents. Barnett Waddingham's um, partner and I think senior longevity consultant, John Palin, he, he suggested when we wrote about this, there might even be in the long term the complete opposite effect of what you might expect from the pandemic. If things, for instance, uh, we learn lessons about hygiene or preventing future pandemics or future outbreaks of flu, you might actually see improvements in life expectancy and mortality in that manner. I, I suppose it's difficult to ask you to put a, a sort of a date, isn't it, on, on when we could make these kinds, well, when it would be safe to make conclusions based on this. Is, is it, are we talking years, Cyprian? Yeah, it has to be years. Again, we, we, we don't need to rush to these things. And with pension schemes, with long-term investing, with long-term liabilities, you have to take the data at a slow pace, cautious. As Lars has mentioned, there are several factors, several variables. Even one more to add on the other side in terms of a positive, and I think this has been written about as well, is perhaps the medical advancement from all of this, the speed of the vaccine. Perhaps if we have certain viruses in future, the speed to actually get the vaccinations out there. So yes, again, from our perspective, we believe it will take years to actually get the sort of true impact from a mortality longevity projection. Fair enough then, in which case we will move on to uh, quite a technical, but I assume as well quite impactful set of proposals from the pensions regulator and the pension protection fund. They're looking to make changes to the asset class information both bodies collect. It's largely to reflect the growth in bond allocations, which now make up, I believe, more than two thirds of assets held by pension schemes. Um, it's replacing a number of older generic bond categories. Government bonds, for instance, is being supplanted by UK government fixed interest bonds, specifically inflation linked by UK government inflation linked. It's introducing new categories under equities and other assets. For instance, diversified growth funds and absolute return funds are being introduced and hedge funds are being removed as categories. Uh, because all this might cause some people migraines, they are also proposing a tiered system because it wasn't complicated enough already, whereby schemes under £20 million will have to comply with very little of it. Schemes between £20 million and £1.5 billion will comply with most of it. And schemes above £1.5 billion will comply with all of it. Lars, I, um, you can have the honour of starting with this quite technical change they're making. It, it, is, it is to reflect the growth in bonds, isn't it? So, so yeah, take us through this, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the, the trend has been very clear over the last... I was going to say a couple of years, but it's probably longer than that, sort of several decades already. Schemes are de-risking. The, the proportion of the assets that are held in bonds has increased significantly. And it does seem like a, a sensible idea to look at that category in much more granular detail than perhaps you did before. And you know whether you split it by, by region or by creditworthiness or by inflation linked versus nominal, I mean, there, are, there are a number of ways that you can actually, that, one, that distinction we kind of made previously anyway. But it does seem like a very sensible way forward to understand that asset profile much better if it now starts making up two thirds of your, or indeed, you know, in some schemes much higher, 80, 90% of the total assets. Whereas previously it might've been, you know, more like 30 or 40% of your total assets and it wasn't too important how you categorize those. I think, as you indicated in your preamble, a bit sceptical is, is the sort of tiering. 
you know, you, you're kind of imposing work on, on some but not others. And then you have, you know, lots of different reports that perhaps don't completely correspond to each other. How do you compare A with B because they're in different size brackets? So maybe there's some things there that need to be worked out still. But, you know, we'll leave that in the capable hands of, of people with much more technical expertise and time on their hands than, than I suspect either of us have. But, you know, I think on the whole, it, it sounds like a, a good idea. It sounds like a useful piece of extra information from a regulator to understand what is the real asset risk profile in the schemes that I'm responsible for as a regulator. Uh, and Lars, coming back to you on, on this, the tiered system, and I know we've touched on some of the complications around it, can you conceive of a way in which it would have been unnecessary? Well, was it always going to be the case that, that this requires the kinds of resources that small schemes simply don't have, so they had to be spared? It? Or could, could there have been a way in which they would be more comparable? Yeah, I mean, look, speculating slightly widely because, you know, this, again, this is not an area that I, I have a great deal of underground experience, but it's it seems to me that, you know, your pension scheme is likely to be administered by some third-party scheme administrator anyway, and they are most likely the people who provide the information. So, you know, just looking at it, thinking forward digitally, you know, that information is available in electronic format, what would prevent an administrator from just submitting, you know, returns to what the, the regulator or some other state body that's interested uh, en masse for all of its schemes, regardless of size. You know, that didn't seem to me that that would be helpful for the smaller schemes to be exempted if they're receiving that information from a third party anyway, who's doing it uh, in bulk for a, a large number of clients. Um, you know, I may well have missed something. There may well be some reason why the individual trustees need to reconcile information or provide additional data. In which case, fair enough, the small scheme doesn't have the resources, it doesn't have the management time to deal with it. And, you know, then some exemption at the, at the lower end is, is appropriate. So, yeah, you know, someone with, with more knowledge of the, of the matter would need to help us out on understanding those differences. If I may add, again, maybe just quickly, I've been, I guess, privy to some of the calculations on the bigger, the larger schemes in terms of this bespoke stress test. And looking through this consultation as is ongoing at the moment, it's trying to get a few more schemes to actually begin to actually measure or classify the assets closer to that way. I guess the regulator is trying to get a sense for the risk profile of significant proportion of pension schemes out there. So perhaps sparing the smaller scheme from a cost perspective, as Lars has mentioned as well. But just more importantly, where does most of the risk sit? It sits within that sort of second tier and third tier, as they've called it. And there's also an aspect of also finding out the sort of trends just generally in terms of what we've talked about, the move to bonds. So I think by focusing on this area, they'll be able to get the information they need and perhaps in future find a way to make smaller schemes do it, but in a cost-effective manner. Yeah, it's either that or they consolidate because that's been the regulatory push, hasn't it? If you can't prove your worth and this might be one way of doing it, then um, then maybe you should look to become part of something larger than yourself. I was actually slightly surprised that they didn't use this. They've used everything else to try and push consolidation on everyone. Right, we'll move on to the final topic on that note, which is, uh, yes, investments in China. As stated at the top, there is a general feeling that schemes are underallocated to China. No agreement as to what allocation uh, should in fact be, uh, in which market, whether China should be separated from emerging markets. How to overcome ESG concerns, for instance, though on the latter point, I think it's worth pointing out Willis Towers Watson's head of emerging market and sustainable investment manager research, uh, Amandeep Sin, said no investor is actually reducing its exposure to China because of ESG based reputational fears. It's just that some are increasing their exposure more slowly. Lars, I'll begin with you on this one as mm -hmm. well. 
the figure, I think, is mentioned at the top, anywhere between 5 and 15% allocation. Would you have a figure that you care to name? Is it between those two? Well, I think just dovetailing on the conversation we had a few minutes ago, that it does very much depend on what type of pension scheme you are. So if you're a closed scheme, if you're de-risking, if most of your assets are on fixed income, then a significant allocation to, to Chinese equities, or indeed to any equities, would be unusual in, in your scheme. So if we then focus on those schemes where there is still an appetite for growth assets, so this could be in the local government sector where there's a reasonable allocation to equities that still exist and a handful of, of private sector schemes, then if we, I think if we look at China as a proportion of sort of the equity markets overall, you know, it's something like, I think it's 5% of the equity market, 7%, 7.5% on the bond market, somewhere in that, that order of magnitude. I think I saw a report from BlackRock recently saying that, you know, across their internal client base, which given their size is probably quite representative, portfolio allocations were actually even below that, you know, 4% allocation to Chinese equities and, and, and much less on the, bond, on the bond side, less than 1%. So A, China, despite its very large size, I um, mean, on a GDP basis, it makes up between 15 and 17% of the world GDP, depending on are you using, you know, purchasing power parity or, or, or constant dollars or something. So, you know, if you just looked at it as its importance to the world, then you would say, well, you know, maybe my equity allocation should mirror that importance to the world. Maybe that's where the, the sort of 17% number came from. But, you know, even if we just look at the, the, the index weights, people are still under allocated. And, you know, to us, that just seems anachronistic. I mean, you've got the world's second largest economy. You know, we're entering a, a phase where, I guess, globalization is pausing slightly. Um, and we're seeing more of a bifurcation between particularly the US and China around things like technology and self-sufficiency and energy and different attitudes towards environmental protection. And, you know, there's, there's a clear bifurcation that's going on there. But in, within that is a very clear inward growth opportunity within China. And if people are under-allocating that, well, you, you're pretty much missing out on a big opportunity that exists out there as China becomes you know, self-sufficient, as your average Chinese resident uh, starts enjoying the, the, let's call it the middle class things we take for granted, um, someone has to supply that stuff, you know, and it's going to be local Chinese companies who are going to make refrigerators for local Chinese consumers. And, you know, if you're able to to participate in that, um, there's, a, there's a significant opportunity. So, you know, we, we that's why I, when I started, you know, we, we find it pretty quite odd that there is such a low allocation to Chinese equities. We very much are in favor of considering of China as a, a standalone allocation rather than just being lumped in with emerging markets uh, exposure. There is some debate as to whether China is in fact still an emerging market. Um, you know, it certainly is if you look at it from a, an income per capita point of view, but there are many other characteristics that China has that are very much first world. You know, it's a, it's a global leader in, in 5G mobile technology. Um, it's a global leader in artificial intelligence and the application of artificial intelligence to shopping, to, to production, to logistics, all these sort of things. So, you know, it has it has characteristics of both. And, you know, perhaps it almost deserves a, a category a little bit on, on its own, which, again, speaks for treating China as a, a separate allocation in portfolio. So certainly when we, you know, when we're talking to clients, that's very much the point we're trying to make is this is important. It's too big to ignore, you know, where exactly the percentage should end up. It, it could differ. And I think the BlackRock study, it was to do with working on a strategic asset allocation. And that, of course, depends on what your risk budget is and what your liabilities look like. And you're going to get different numbers coming through. But, you know, if you were just looking at it from an opportunity point of view and from an importance to the world, you would have a, a much higher allocation to China than most investors currently have. 
And Cyprian, do you want to come in on this? I mean, I think for the layperson, if the layperson is looking up at the sky, wondering which bit of Chinese space rocket is about to land on his house, they might find it incongruous that it's still classed as an emerging market rather than a pretty well-developed one. But um, what difference would a change in its categorization make? Are you in favor of changing the categorization in the first place? But what difference does that make if you are? I guess, first of all, for me, Lars has been very comprehensive and makes great points in terms of China in terms of the growth of the economy, it's been phenomenal. Lars did touch on the sort of GDP per capita, which is probably ranked about 70, 73rd in the global economy. So from that sort of perspective, it then points to perhaps the nominal GDP being as a result of the population. So yes, it's, it's a, a market leader, definitely, but there is still a bit of way to go. So I guess from an SEI perspective, we're taking a sort of cautious approach to say it's already reflected in the sort of MSCI or country world. I think it's 40% of MSCI emerging market. It can only go one way from there. So why not ride it through there? Why not also think about these global companies that have a significant proportion of their revenue from China? Why not invest in that way? It's almost, I guess for us, it's a sort of cautious approach. So Yes, at some point, it probably will be pulled out of the emerging market index. And when it does, it will come into other indices and have its place there. And that'll be reflective in our clients' portfolio. So I do agree with Lars to an extent, but we're, we're being cautious in terms of just that sort of direct allocation. And Lars, if I can come back to you, and you mentioned the, the, the opportunity to be had, you know, from Chinese companies making products for Chinese people. There's a difference, though, isn't there, between its H shares and its and its A shares? And and one of these the 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 mainland shares in China is a much more closed market, from what I understand. So there are limited opportunities, relatively limited opportunities to invest in that. And it sort of leads to an ESG point as well, because of course I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's a majority of companies, certainly on the mainland, or listed companies on the mainland are at least partly state-owned, aren't they, which produce certain governance and other kinds of risk associated with them. To, to what extent is, is further investment in China requiring more of an opening up of the mainland market? And is there a way of overcoming the associated ESG risks of a largely state-controlled economy as well? Yeah, let's, let's start with the market access. So that has actually improved considerably over the last decade, decade and a half. You know, initially there were there were it was a quota-based system and it was quite cumbersome to access the, the, the mainland market, the A share market as it's known. The Hong Kong market it has been available to you know Western investors for for decades. So there's nothing special going on there. And a lot of large Chinese companies are listed in Hong Kong. So you know you can get the exposure there anyway. But specifically the mainland market, which is really where all the exciting stuff is happening, the domestic production for domestic consumers. A scheme called Stock Connect was introduced uh, some years ago that is essentially a a settlements agreement between Hong Kong and the respectively Shanghai and Shenzhen markets that allows you to trade through Hong Kong but settle Chinese mainland securities. And and that has really transformed the, the ease with which one can access the Chinese market. And as a result, there's been a significant increase in uh, direct portfolio holdings by you know, Western institutional investors of mainland Chinese securities. Um, you know, we have a, a, a pooled fund of funds that has a, a, about a 65% allocation to the mainland. So, you know, there are some significant flows that have already taken place, even just through ourselves. You know, and then, of course, everybody else put together a um, fairly large amount of money has moved in that direction. And it's, as I say, it's become much easier. There. The uh, attitude of the Chinese authorities is very clearly to open up, but open up at a pace that they're comfortable with. You know, they need to understand what does it mean to have foreign shareholders? What does it mean? What what sort of compliance or reporting issues are uh, come with that? 
you know, they still have limits on foreign ownership of domestic companies. And you know, as you pointed out, there is state ownership is still an issue uh, in, in a lot of local Chinese firms. So there are, there are still hurdles to overcome, but the direction of travel is very clearly an opening up. They want the Chinese want to be part of the global financial community, and they're just finding the right way to do that. Your other question is to do with the sort of let's call it ESG more broadly in China. You know, inevitably a conversation around China is always tied up with with ESG. On the environment side, there's good and bad. So you know, China is still the world's largest or second largest uh, emitter of carbon emissions right now, but also is is out there saying, look, we're going to be net zero by 2060. So, you know, they're the largest producer of solar panels in the world, even though there's a legacy of uh, particularly around power generation um, where, you know, you, you're not doing it in the most, in the cleanest way, in the most, perhaps the most efficient way. The, again, the direction of travel from the center is very clear. And because it's state controlled, you can make these sort of changes quite quickly. You can say, look, your steel plant is polluting. By next week, you're shut and it closes, right? You know, that you wouldn't get that sort of thing. You know, I, I, I challenge Boris Johnson to, you know, have a go at, at a steel company in the UK with that sort of attitude. It just wouldn't work. It wouldn't fly. Whereas, you know, in a state controlled environment, that sort of thing does happen and has happened. You know, mines have been closed because they were not considered environmentally uh, satisfactory or indeed they were, you know, in, in some other way, violating the social contract within China. So, you know, the other thing we must bear in mind is that it's still a notionally communist country. Society before individual is is a mantra that you will come across frequently in China. And with that come, you know, different attitudes to things like, I don't know, data privacy, uh, you know, you, the, the ability to for individual free expression. You know, we, we value these things highly in, in a Western society. In China, I'm sure people also value it, but the tiering is different. You know, the society kind of comes first. And so we will we will come across rules and regulations and, and ways of doing things that we find alien. But for the, the Chinese, actually, you know, that's we've been doing it like this. We enjoy it. We like it like this. We've, it makes us comfortable. It's, it's what we're familiar with. But yes, you're quite right. You know, there, there will be things that we need to overcome as Western investors to be comfortable with. And I think just to sort of finish off on the point, our standpoint is really engagement is the way forward. You know, we, we have the opportunity to make a difference. We have an opportunity both on, say, the environmental side, on how, on governance. How should companies be run? How should boards be constituted? Uh, what reporting should you have? What should auditing look like? You know, all these sort of things that we've had centuries of experience working out what, you know, what the answer is. By engaging with Chinese companies directly and helping them with ESG reporting, helping them with these governance issues, helping them with, with labor practices, you know, saying, look, what, what, what used to happen here, that's not acceptable. Western consumers are not going to buy your T-shirts if this is how they've been manufactured. You need to sort yourselves out. And, you know, okay, that sort of engagement will bear fruit. And, you know, the, as I said, you know, we would argue very strongly in favor of that engagement rather than saying, look, you know, it's, it's all too hard and there's, there's some stuff going on that we don't really enjoy. Let's just turn our backs. Then you'll find someone who's unscrupulous and they will, you know, the practices will continue. Much better to get involved and, uh, and make a difference. Certainly sounds like I, I would suggest that the Chinese have so far discovered there are no Western moral qualms that can't be bought out or that we're not prepared to perhaps look away from for a certain kind of offering. Right. Well, uh, that was a brilliantly comprehensive answer. That brings us pretty much nicely to the end of the program. However, there is the always a pensions angle, of course, and from one, I suppose, nascent empire to one which is gone. Uh, Cyprian, I think you had a pensions angle for us, a Roman one, I believe. Yes, I do. Um, I think we have to travel back in time, 13th century BC, to be precise. Again, this is from Augustus Caesar. He was basically worried about retired soldiers rising up against the empire. 
So he came up with this clever, amazing plan that after 25 years of service, really, the soldiers be given a pension. And the pension was, I think, 13 times their annual salary, so a lump sum. And I think that helped in terms of them being less inclined to overthrow him. How they spent the money, who knows, because it was a lump sum. But I just found it quite interesting. Romans, there'll be wine and brothels, I suspect. But um, fantastic. <laughs> Can't quite see um, Boris Johnson or any equivalent leader nowadays attempting the same thing. 13 times the annual salary would be very generous. Perfect. That, that brings us to the end of the program. Then. So thank you uh, both to Lars and to Sibria for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll be back with you in two weeks' time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.